Hello, and welcome to Reasonable Disagreements, a Hoover Institution podcast on law and policy. I'm Adam White, a professor at George Mason University and a resident scholar at AEI, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and and Hoover Institution senior fellow, Richard Epstein. Richard, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, on this cheery Monday morning. I think the Dow has gone up, so what could be wrong in the world, right? Right. Well, as we are taping this on a Monday morning, uh, we're all waiting to see what House Democrats do on impeachment. Although I don't think there's a whole lot of suspense here. Richard, are you in much doubt about what the House's next step is? Um, I'm in doubt about what the House is going to do. I could not think of anything more certain except for the sunrise. Um, I think there's already been one Democratic defection who will become a Republican. My guess is there may be a few Democrats who will hesitate a bit. I don't think there'll be any Republicans who break rank. If the committee was 2317 in favor of impeachment, um, I think that's a fair microcosm of what's going to happen. So suspense is not what the issue is. Uh, The question is going to be exactly where we go from here. I agree. I don't think there's been any real suspense since the uh, the impeachment inquiry was either formally commenced with a resolution or sort of informally commenced with a press conference. Everybody's expected uh, that this is where we head up. We we wind up with a vote in favor of a, of impeachment articles coming out of the House and taking this to the Senate. And I think. Because of that seeming inevitability, there's been a lot of debate in the last couple of weeks about the role of the Senate in the process and the role of senators in the process. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion surrounding the oath that senators swear uh, regarding their conduct in impeachment. The Constitution itself requires that when the Senate sits in trial of an impeachment, uh, they shall do so on, quote, oath or affirmation. And then, as I understand it, the rules of the Senate on impeachment trials specifies the text for this oath, quote, I solemnly swear or affirm that in all things appertaining to the trial now pending, I will do impartial justice to the Constitution and laws, so help me God. And that's on a lot of radars right now because of statements coming from some Republican senators, McConnell and Graham, regarding uh, their view of the seemingly imminent Senate impeachment trial and possibly even McConnell coordinating with the White House on this, and they're taking a lot of attacks for that. But in all fairness, any kind of criticism about the impartiality of senators needs to go also to Senator Warren and other senators on the Democratic side who have already prejudged the case. Richard, as a as a fine constitutionalist, how do you think senators ought to go about doing the work of a Senate impeachment trial under this oath uh, in light of the modern political environment? Well, first of all, let's take the oath and ignore the political environment. My view is once it's clear that there's going to be a trial, I think every senator, like every judge and every juror, ought to abjure from making any extracurricular statements about what is going on. They should not express political views. They should not grandstand. They should not announce that they are going to collaborate with the president or define him. I think at this particular point, they basically have to act as a court would act, which is to insulate itself from all of that stuff. Uh, You then mentioned what about the political pressures under these circumstances. My view is it makes this kind of impartiality and detachment even more rather than less less important. Um, We know that everybody harbors deep biases in this situation. The framers could not have been, shall we say, immune to the obvious fact that anybody who's going to be impeached is obviously going to have some political trouble and is going to have, therefore, some enemies in both the House and in the Senate. Uh, But this is an exercise in which you're trying to overcome 
these defects. It's not an exercise in what you're trying to do to magnify them. So I think uh, Mitch McConnell made a mistake to say he was going to talk to the president. I think somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who says, well, we know we're going to impeach, has made a mistake. Uh, there's no glory in this particular situation. I regard the whole episode as extraordinarily unfortunate in terms of its long-term political impact upon the system. And I think it's best that it be done quickly and fairly. How it's going to be done, however, I think is another can of worms. Uh, because, of, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe we've ever had any impeachment trial where matters of fact were very much an issue and matters of privilege and testimony uh, by um, witnesses is going to be part of the game. And that surely has to be part of what's going to happen here in the middle of a political system. So I think there'll be lots of stuff for commentators to bite their chief on, to put it mildly. I don't know whether I'll be amongst them, but I have to say I approach this with a certain bit of dread and foreboding. I agree with that last point. Well, all the dread and foreboding, but I guess the, the, the point right before that about matters of fact, I think that's exactly right. 20 years ago, uh, when the Senate held its impeachment trial of Bill Clinton, the facts were basically established. Uh, everybody took for granted the facts set forth in the Star Report. The question was the, the only remaining questions were one of ones of law, namely, did what President Clinton did uh, rise to the level of perjury? Uh, did it rise to the level, in turn, of high crimes and misdemeanors? And then also the prudential questions surrounding impeachment. For this one, we really do have questions of fact that are contested, uh, and there will be, it seems, uh, inevitably, some form of fact-finding within the Senate. Uh, Senator Schumer has already called for witnesses to come forward. I believe he called for, for Bolton. Um, among others. And so there'll be a fight over that. I've tried to break down this process into the three types of questions that senators have to ask or have to decide when they vote for impeachment. They're voting on, they're, they're deciding factual questions, so they're making factual judgments. What actually happened and what were the motivate, what in fact were the motivations for the things that happened? Then second, there are legal judgments about uh, whether the president's actions rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, interestingly, it seems the House is not going to uh, charge the president with bribery, another constitutional term uh, in the impeachment clause, but just high crimes and misdemeanors. So the senators will need to decide whether the president's actions, based on the facts they found, uh, rise to the legal level of high crimes and misdemeanors. And then finally, in addition to factual questions and legal questions, they also have to make prudential judgments about whether, you know, in light of the facts and the law, impeachment is still worth pursuing in light of broader practical prudential questions about the timing of impeachment so close to an election. But in the previous one, as you said, we really only had to grapple with the legal questions and the prudential questions, the factual ones, were taken for granted. I saw some claims that the, the Senate should demand that the House turn over—or sorry, that the White House turn over more materials that they were willing to give to the House of Representatives. That's a possibility. One thing, though, I'm wondering is whether the senators will demand that the House of Representatives— turn over materials. People seem to think that the only facts at issue here are the ones in the White House's possession, 
Of course, the House itself has done a lot behind closed doors. And I wonder how much the Senate will demand that the House turn over transcripts, uh, emails among the members of Congress and and their staff and so on. If we're going to analogize this to a trial, which is always, I think, a little bit overdone, uh, the question is always, well, what what materials do the prosecutors have in their possession that the defendant ought to be entitled to? I mean, how do you how do you see the factual investigations playing out in the Senate? Um, I think of this as being really quite nightmarish uh, because the things that you start with are the whistleblower. Um, Mm. Here is somebody whose testimony is not being relied on in any explicit fashion uh, in terms of the two indictments. In addition, interestingly enough, it turns out bribery is out of the case and even pressuring and undue influence seems to be out of the case. It's now a much broader abuse of public standard. Uh, But if I were trying to figure out whether or not to go on how to investigate as a Republican, I would say maybe this stuff is not admissible um, before the trial, but we certainly are entitled to know exactly what it was that you relied on when you decided that you were going to make your particular um, uh, charges. And so I think they could sort of demand that. Then there's going to be a battle as to how confidential that ought to be. Um, My guess is that if it's a preliminary discovery, it should be kept confidential. Suppose it turns out that what happens is the uh, Republicans find out that uh, a lot of stuff that other people relied upon, in fact, came from the whistleblower, and the whistleblower himself had no foundation uh, for doing it, and that would give rise to such questions as, do we admit hearsay in cases of this particular sort? I think they can do that. I mean, if I were a Democrat, a Republican rather, I mean, I certainly would like to see if I could find a way, I'm not sure you can, uh, uh, to basically demand the testimony of Adam Schiff to come forward about how it was that he prepared all of these things. Um, it's it's just a complete nightmare. Um, do I think that the Democrats Democrats are entitled to ask John Bolton to testify and so forth. I do, but I also think that that's a sheer measure of desperation to some extent. Generally speaking, if you want to bring somebody in as a witness that's hostile, you'd like to have some idea of what that person is going to say because you could get on the stand and completely shatter the particular case that you're trying to put forward. So I think both sides are playing a very risky game. Uh, in addition, the more you make by way of these demands and the more preliminary motions you have, it means that the actual trial is going to have to be postponed until all the subpoena issues are sorted out. And that could get us at the height of the campaign season. And Mm -hmm. we're going to have to see whether or not the remaining Democrats, most notably Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who are in this thing, are going to take a powder with respect to these hearings so they continue to work on the campaign trail. I've never quite seen anything where so many things are going on. And I'll just mention a third. Um, It's quite clear that uh, uh, the uh, report by um, Horowitz with respect to what went on in the FBI and 2016 will surely become relevant because the argument that this is a political vendetta will be fueled uh, by the revelations that virtually everything that went on after the initial decision to uh, put a wiretap on Carter Page was done completely in violation of every known procedure of the FBI and every other organization is certainly going to well, if these guys have been completely corrupt with this, and if Adam Schiff wrote something very long and detailed defending what seems to now be an indefensible position, uh, we really have to understand whether or not this is just sheer bias, malice, and so forth. So I think that this thing can drag on a very, very long time. And I think that, in effect, since the Democrats have sole ownership of this situation, I think it's quite likely that their position will deteriorate with respect to the electorate as the legal um, disputes continue to spin on. 
and their political relevance becomes more and more dubious. Uh, so I think the Democrats want to get this thing over early, and I think it may have been a strategic blunder on the part of somebody like Schumer uh, to insist on going the whole nine yards with respect to getting uh, this sort of information. So it's all very, very complicated, as you know. But um, I, at this particular point, uh, tend to think that the Democrats have made a political mistake um, in terms of doing this. I think the legal judgments are going to be highly contested. And the longer this thing goes on, uh, the less patience the public will have with something which could easily be characterized as a vendetta by the uh, president and his supporter, particularly in light of the Horowitz report. Now, on the, uh, let me just tie up the point about facts. I mean, from the moment we saw the memo, the sort of somewhat transcriptish memo detailing the call between the president and Ukraine, from the moment we saw that, I thought that the facts that, that at least set forward some facts that came very close to impeachable offenses, the idea of the president, pretty clearly, in my opinion, calling upon a foreign country to look into the president's primary political opponent. That struck me as perhaps the most impeachment-worthy thing that the president's done. I know the president's defenders have said, well, no, he was worried about corruption. I think that requires a willing suspension of disbelief. President Trump really has shown no interest in corruption elsewhere except where it just happens to be his primary presidential opponent and his family being in the middle of it. And so I've thought that that, that comes very close on the facts to, to, to being an impeachable, an impeachment-worthy offense. Of course, there are factual questions about what was the president's real motivation? What was he thinking? What was he intending? I'm not saying it's open and shut. I'm saying I think the best reading of the facts as we have them so far is pretty damning of the president. But I wish that Senate, uh, sorry, that House Democrats would have tried harder to get the testimony of Bolton and others, people closest to the president, who would be the most credible on the president's actual intentions. Uh, the House decided not to go forward for that for reasons that I'll get back to in a minute. But I was disappointed to see that. But on the factual record, as we have it right now, I think that there's more than enough for senators to, to find that the facts give rise to an impeachable offense. But then there's that legal question, right? What is a high crime and misdemeanor? I think we've talked about this in the past. It's not a it's not a, a clear not an easily interpreted term. I always resort back to things like Federalist 65 and Alexander Hamilton's own particular take on what an impeachable offense is. It's not just all crimes. It's some some crimes are not necessarily high crimes and misdemeanors. Of course, it's not limited to crimes exclusively, as as Madison and, and others have sketched out. I think in this case, if I'm right on the facts that the president was trying to enlist, leverage really the hard assets of the United States to enlist a foreign country to pursue his political opponent. That probably comes within the ambit of high crimes and misdemeanors, trying to undermine the political process itself in a way that's not easily solved by the political process. It's hard to say, let's have an election solve this question, when the whole question is whether the president was trying to undermine the electoral process. But Racing past all of that, I want to hone in on the, the, the prudential question that you keep zeroing in on. Are Senate Democrats making a blunder by going into this now in the middle of an election year? Why do you keep calling it a blunder? Well, because I think what's happened is I disagree with you on the underlying characterization mm -hmm. and think that the conversation in and of itself is not 
perfectly innocuous and shows some degree of bad judgment, but I don't think it rises to the level. And what's more troublesome about it for the Democrats is in the time since that thing has been released, they have not been able to come up with the context, uh, which makes your particular view of the thing uh, look to be more credible. So it's not as though anybody has come out in an unambiguous way and said this is the disputed testimony by Sunland changes his mind. You're not going to get an impeachment on somebody who waffles back and forth. The Ukrainians have denied this. There was no mention whatsoever of either the 2020 or the 2016 election in this particular phone call. All the weapons were delivered. And in fact, one of the reasons why there was so much delay is uh, that Obama himself had thought that giving lethal weapons to the Ukrainians might inflame the Soviet Union. And all of these things have policy judgments. There's also the fact that you have to characterize what the president asked. He did not ask, quote unquote, that somebody get dirt on Mr. Biden. He asked about a very specific transaction in which it turns out there's presumptive irregularity. Why it is that Hunter Biden, when his father turns out to be the chief American official dealing with Ukraine, gets this very lucrative $50,000 a month consulting contract with a corrupt firm is something which, in fact, I would care about. And so I'll put it back to you in the following way, just on the impeachable offense stuff. Sure. Suppose Biden were not running for president under these circumstances, and this thing came to light, and somebody decided they want to investigate that. I would regard that as a perfectly legitimate request. So then the question becomes: If you oh, put in, I, I would too. I would too. By the way, but 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 now you got dual motive. Yep. And I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I know, but dual motive is awfully hard to get an impeachment on, particularly since there's nothing else that they have. What really set this thing off was not so much the thing, it was the whistleblower's leak, which was filled with hearsay and large numbers of distortion. There's no evidence of coercion, of pressuring of any sort in that conversation. It might have been our request to favor, but that word came in the beginning and the Biden stuff came at the very end of the conversation. So I think the reason why the Democrats did not push uh, on this particular issue is they realize that if they're going to be subject to cross-examination, it's not going to be as sweet as them for them as they might have otherwise wanted. So they're going back to a more vague situation. The problem for them tactically is if you want to win on a trial and you've got a smoking gun document, uh, you force the other guys to put context in to explain it away. But in this particular case, the Republicans are not under that kind of an obligation. The memo is simply, or the phone call is not that strong. The context of immediately cuts against it. you got 20-odd people in the room. That's not the time when you put the arm on somebody. So then what they're doing is they're talking about a course of dealing. But the burden is upon them to explain exactly what there is about this particular course of dealing above and beyond what we see in the phone call. Uh, that will do it. They can't introduce the whistleblower stuff. Uh, so they are now trying to do a very broad stuff, and they've done nothing whatsoever, as far as I'm concerned, in the original um, in the original House inquiry, which went, as you know, very, very rapidly, uh, to establish a context that's going to be credible. So I think they have, just as a straight litigation matter, uh, some very, very serious problems that they have to contend with. So to put the two things together, if the case is going to be one of these large contextual cases in which they will have literally no control over what is and is not going to come in, and they are doing it at a time when they are under attack for serious irregularities and during the middle of a presidential election where there have been so many people um, who say all they're doing is gunning for Trump. It's going to hurt them. Look, I'll ask you a question, you know, since you asked me questions. Is, I mean, you, you saw the, the testimony of the four professors, particularly the three liberal ones. I thought that was an unmitigated disaster. 
uh, for the Democrats. Uh, because what happens is you take people who are very confident in the cloistered realms of Chapel Hill, Stanford, California, and Harvard, all of whom are ardent anti-Trumpists in favor of impeachment before they come up there, giving their neutral estimation as to what various kinds of things go when they have no direct evidence. I think, in effect, that the general reaction, wholly apart from Pam Carlin's silly joke, uh, was fairly strongly negative about what was going on there. And so I think, in effect, that's a harbinger of the way in which this thing is likely to pay out in the next generation. So I think the Democrats should cut their losses. I don't believe they will. I think the progressive wing of the party is just too strong for them to do that. Uh, but they're going to pay, perhaps, not only with the loss of the presidency, but also with respect to the loss of the House of Representatives. I mean, it's not as though when you look at the way in which the nation is going locally and economically, that Trump has been losing. He got a very bad, but at least a deal with NAFTA. He may have a deal with China uh, so as to at least mitigate the stupidities that he's consistently practiced over the last several years on trade. Stock markets up at record highs. Unemployment is very low. Uh, the greatest beneficiaries of wage increases turn out to be, of course, the former criminals, minorities, kids, and so forth. Contrary to all democratic wisdom, I think they've got a lot that they have to worry about. And to put this on top of it could be the a kiss of death. I think there are a couple of questions in there, Richard. Your last question about the four law professors, I, I agree with you. I think that that was an extremely counterproductive move by the Democrats. I thought Turley did very well. I actually thought Michael Gerhardt did very well on the, the Democratic side. I think that the selection of Carlin and Feldman, the, the moment I saw that they were announced as witnesses, I thought that it, it, it was a, a big mistake by the Democrats simply reinforcing the political and partisan nature of what was going on here. I think they would have done well to have invited two other witnesses instead of Feldman and Carlin, who were less saliently partisan um, on that issue, but that was their mistake. Getting back, you asked sort of along the way, if this had not been Joe Biden, if this had been anybody else at issue in this, in this Ukraine call, uh, would I be as worried? No, definitely not. And that's the crux of the point, actually. It's, it's only because it's the Bidens uh, who are at issue here, President Trump's probably most significant political adversary right now. Uh, that's what makes this very worrisome for me. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this is the one phone call we happen to know about. There isn't some sort of course of conduct where President Trump has been strong-arming or even less than strong-arming, uh, inviting our, our foreign uh, allies to, to root out corruption. Uh, and this just happens to be one example. No, President Trump's shown absolutely no interest in that issue, except for when involves Joe Biden. And I think, again, it takes a willing suspension of disbelief not to think that President Trump just uh, is targeting this for that particular political reason. And so that's what I think, I, I, that's the red line that I think President Trump crossed by making this uh, particular pursuit of this one particular American, Joe Biden. Now, you're right that the, the memo, the conversation doesn't have the president threatening anybody. Um, but of course, America is the Ukraine's most significant geopolitical ally. 
and it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to read between the lines. I remember, Richard, years ago, you did a, a wonderful essay, one of your many wonderful essays. This one was particularly in, uh, this one in particular was in National Affairs. It's called Government by Waiver. And you talked about how insidious it is to have a, a, an approach to administration and governance where people have to constantly come to the government for approval of something, for a benefit. You, you pointed out that that puts immense power on the side of the government and puts the people at a unique disadvantage. I think we ought to think about the Ukraine situation in an analogous way. President Trump didn't need to say a whole lot because everybody understands what the relationship between the U.S. and the Ukraine is. And President Trump can ask for something very gently and see it understood as something much more significant. Now, of course, the United States didn't actually follow through with President Trump's approach because the whistle was blown and people quickly recognized that this was going to be disastrous and President Trump dialed it back. But I think that on its face, it raises a very worrisome question about the role of the president uh, enlisting foreign help in uh, his upcoming re-election. I think that that's one of the few sort of dangers in our political process that can't be easily solved by ordinary politics. As I just said a, a few minutes ago, it's hard to have an election answer the question about whether the president is undermining the election. It's unavoidable that a president is going to use his powers for the sake of re-election. In fact, that's usually a good thing. We want presidents to carry out their powers in their first terms with an eye to getting the people to vote for them to re-elect them. Uh, but when the president sort of casts his gaze abroad and tries to leverage that power to uh, get a foreign adversary to undermine his political opponent— that's something that I think cries out for impeachment. And so if the facts show that the president actually did do this intentionally, I think it rises to a level of an impeachable offense. And I think the facts, as we've seen them, the best reading of them really is that they should be uh, impeached. I keep trying to cut you off and move to the next question. Can I cut you off and move to the next question? No. <laughs> I, no, I, I think that actually uh, this does deserve an answer. Let me try to give at least in a couple of parts. First of all, thank you very much for the kind things you said about the arguments of government by waiver. Uh, but these were, of course, explicit public actions, all of which were authorized. And it indicates the dangers of having domestically onerous rules that nobody could comply with and then selectively waiving them for your friends, but not for your opponent. Uh, but uh, that was not a criminal trial. That was not a criminal trial where the proof is probably needed beyond a reasonable doubt. And in this particular case, reading between the lines is a nice rhetorical device, but I don't think it's going to substitute for the standard that's involved. Uh, you say the president took a singular issue in corruption in this case. I don't think when you put that into context, it's nearly as ominous as you say. Uh, what President Trump said when this thing began is that there was Joseph, uh, there was Joe Biden bragging about the fact of how it was that he managed to force the Ukrainian government uh, to sack um, one of its officials uh, so that they could continue to get U.S. aid. Uh, if Trump is doing this, it's illegal and impeachable. Is it impeachable for the president of the United States and the vice president to explicitly say, we want you to do this? I don't think it would be impeachable. Uh, but what happens is it already puts the corruption issue front and center with respect to the Ukraine in a way in which it's not front and center with respect to anybody else. And what, what Trump said, if you read the last phrase of that, was he thought 
thought this was just terrible. I mean, he's now playing the role of a moralist. And in fact, you know, my view about it, if you just forgot about Trump and just looked at what the two things that Biden had done with his son and then maybe the China deal as well, I regard these as very serious criticisms of him. And I think, in fact, the argument could be made that somebody who shows that kind of political judgment has a very strong mark against him with respect to his electability and the desirability of his election. So I just don't think when you see the whole thing together uh, that it rises close to what you would need for an impeachable offense. I'm not even sure that it was completely inappropriate under these circumstances. Obviously, given the flowback that had come with respect to this, including this hearing, it was a stupid thing for anybody to want to say. But I have to say, if the one thing that you have is just that little quote and that snippet from that speech, uh, that's not going to carry the day with people who do not have um, the sort of general hostility with respect to, to Trump. So I think, in effect, that uh, I will be as blunt as I possibly say. I don't think, Adam, that anything that you had said will persuade anybody who's inclined to say the enormous burden that has to be met by anybody um, who wishes to push for an imprisonment has been destroyed. I don't think it has has really done that. Um, and I think this thing is going to go on for a very long time. Um, my guess is that I think the odds of Trump getting the re-election, that right now the odds are pretty close to even one way or another, I would guess, if you looked at the prediction markets. But I think they're going to tilt with respect to Trump, particularly if the world news remains pretty much the way in which it has gone in the last couple of weeks. Uh, but it's certainly not going to shift back in favor of the Democrats in virtue of what's happening here. Now you may go on to your next Whatever. <laughs> so we've, we've talked a lot about the president and we've talked a lot about the Senate. We haven't talked that much about the House. I just want to point out something that's bothered me a little bit about the last week or two of debates, all this attention paid to the duties of the Senate in hearing an impeachment trial. I've seen very, very little sort of discussion of the duties of the House as they actually go forward to vote on this impeachment. Uh, I wrote about this a, a couple of months ago, I guess, for the bulwark, pointing out that, that the House had a choice to make. Uh, it could either live down to the very, very low expectations that Hamilton had for the House in Federal 65 when Hamilton explained why the Senate, not the House, could be trusted to hear impeachment trials. Uh, the House was always seen as a much more political body, much more partisan body, a much more impassioned body, uh, unsuited to making the kind of judgment that impeachment trials call for. Uh, but as I said in my piece a couple months ago, uh, the House ought to aim higher than that, especially if it wants its judgment on impeachment, its own judgment on impeachment, to to stand up in the eyes of history. And so for all the talk about the, the impartiality or the necessary impartiality of the Senate sitting as a jury, the fact is that the House sitting as a prosecutor of, of a sort ought to have its own higher standard to live up to. And I think that the sheer absence of any real effort by, by House Democrats to live up to any kind of standard of, of prosecutorial impartiality um, has been pretty pathetic. And I think that the, 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 the exclusive focus on the Senate rather than the House for its higher duties under the Constitution just proves that the House really is living down to the very, very low expectations that Hamilton and others had for it. And I think that's something that ought to be... Um, I, I, I think it's a sad thing to see.
Well, it's very sad to see, but I'm going to even take it one step further. These are the guys who are bringing the prosecution. Um, there is no duty, of course, that a, an impeachment prosecution be nonpartisan constitutionally, although politically it's been strictly necessary, I think, to do so. But here, not only do you have a straight party line vote, but you also have proceedings of this a preliminary investigation before an inquiry was called, which are hardly irregular given past practices. Once you decide that you're going to call for an impeachment inquiry by a formal vote of the House, then in effect the minority party has an equal status with respect to the majority party. And so what Ms. Pelosi decided to do was not to call this, let Schiff run this thing, and he could decide what to keep and what to leak. And the Republicans were allowed to ask some questions, but they could not in effect interact with the public. Uh, to call this a grand jury proceeding or analogy to one, when you constantly leak evidence one side and ignore evidence on the other side is just terrible. And so. Going forward with what I think is a much shakier case than you do, being brought by a group of individuals who can easily be condemned in the way in which you can condemn them, they're not going to get any presumption of prosecutorial legitimacy, not only given the fact that this is a straight partisan vote, but also because of the highly irregular procedures, and also because uh, Adam Schiff at this particular point should have uh, his reputation in tatters after the report that he issued uh, trying to defend everything about the Trump investigation in 2000. 2016. Remember, that's not an unrelated event. Trump is, in fact, the subject of this particular thing. And it's quite clear that he basically gave an unforgivable apology of everything that went on. So uh, I think these two events are really very closely linked in the eyes of the public. And I just don't think there's any place for the Democrats to hide. Uh, there was this statement, of course, by Dunham, uh, who is running, or Durham, rather, who's running the investigation in Connecticut for Bill Barr, saying, wait a second, um, we do not agree with you, and we're not going to say anything yet, about the question that this thing was legitimate in its onset, uh, even though it turned very bad very quickly thereafter. I have a piece coming out today on the Hoover site saying if you actually look at what Horowitz gave as evidence for his proposition, it wasn't proving anything. He just said he didn't have evidence that disproved it. And people are saying that he debunked this theory, which just plain wrong with respect to the stuff. And so remember, what's going to go on is more and more stuff about this other thing is going to come out simultaneously with this hearing, and that's going to get greater and greater discredit to the Democrats. So I think that, in effect, as they keep this thing going on, uh, given the constellation of forces against them, based by independence, that is what Horowitz has done, and others following him, it's going to be a very different thing. Uh, already, you know, the Republican press has had a field day uh, with Comey, has a field day with Schiff, and as far as I can see, this is not going to be stopped because everything on the other side that has been thus uh, said thus far has been in the nature of an effort to minimize these things or sort of pretend uh, that uh, there was a strong point of innocence, i.e. the initial choice to investigate, which I don't think is established on this particular record. You mentioned the, the House Republicans not getting a chance to really ask questions. I will, I will say I think that, that, that Congressman Nunez and Jordan beclowned themselves at least as much as, as Schiff and a number of the Democrats did. Uh, they didn't cover themselves in, in glory. Either I think the most admirable person in the House proceeding so far has probably been Congressman Will Hurd. It's not a coincidence that he's a he's a lame duck and doesn't have uh, to to stand for re-election. But I don't think there was any real serious effort on the part of of the the leading Republicans on those two committees to ask serious and and impartial questions worthy of the of the matter at hand. 
What are you talking about? Which of these various public things? I assume this was the the hearing that you saw in the in the House committee. Um, I thought the Republicans sounded rather strident under these circumstances. Uh, but again, I, I think what you have to remember is it's the burden of proof that is critical. If it turns out that the Democrats have to carry something and they act completely inadequately and they don't make out a prima facie case, the fact that the Republicans are silly in reply, I don't think is going to be enough to switch the balance. Um, I think you have to keep that in mind. Uh, the Republicans are not the ones who have to make the case. The Democrats are. And I would think under these circumstances, they have failed to do so. And so that, I think, is what the, the key issue is going to be. And I mean, I'm going to just ask one other question. I don't even know the answer, Adam. Maybe you do. Uh, when they go forward, the House obviously does not have a unified front. Do the Republicans in the House have any role in participating, or is it just going to be the defendants doing an exclusive prosecution with no input from the other side? Well, I, I believe that the House as a whole, meaning the House majority, meaning the Democrats, will will choose the House managers that actually prosecute this. So no, there won't be any Democrat. Sorry, there won't be any Republicans uh, involved in the the House case before the Senate, just as there weren't Democrats involved when Henry Hyde brought the case against President Clinton. That obviously does create you know, the the dynamic we've seen all along that we're talking about the House as a whole and its duties. But of course, the House is split between Republicans and, and Democrats. Um, but we keep talking about the, the burden of proof. I mean, ultimately, the burden of proof is on the House as a whole, um, not just the Democrats in the House. And so while Democrats were in the driver's seat, I wish that Republicans, especially in the House Intelligence Committee hearings, uh, would have spent more time asking questions to get down to the the, the business of what exactly was President Trump's uh, motivation here? What are the other examples of him pursuing corruption, showing that this pursuit of the Bidens was really just part of a larger uh, presidential initiative against corruption overseas? There really wasn't a whole lot of that. Most of what you saw was 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 Jordan uh, and others just sort of badgering witnesses, including a number of civil servants uh, who I think were entitled to, to, who I think acquitted themselves quite well. Of course, I'm thinking um, right now primarily of of, um, of Bolton's aide, uh, Fiona Hill, um, but uh, especially Fiona Hill, actually. Um, I think that, that the Republican members of the House could have conducted themselves uh, in a much better way and a much more productive way. And I think instead, all most of what we got was just, uh, again, Congressman Jordan just beclowning himself and Nunez. Well, that, again, is not going to be important going forward because the only people we're going to see on center stage are going to be the Democrats, yeah. and the Republicans are not going to be there. And this will then come across as reinforcing the partisanship nature. I assume that the Republicans in the House will take it upon themselves, since they're not part of the formal procedures to give their commentaries on it. They're not going to be bound by the same oath of office as being quasi-judges in this particular case. And so they will, again, be able to snipe. They may be counterproductive at it. Uh, but given the fact that you have such an utterly um, biased situation, uh, this is it. Again, you know, just take Schiff, for example. Um, we had a lot of disagreements about the Mueller report. I am now prepared to say that I think I was right. I said from the beginning there was nothing in that report. We could expect nothing out of it. And I've seen poor Mueller was so inept when he gave his own testimony uh, that he has mercifully been allowed to disappear from public life. And remember, that's the precursor of what's going on here. So when you're starting to look about motivation, uh, you have people salivating 
at the bit in order to try to find something in the Mueller report. And then they don't even have their courage of convictions because the second count is obstruction of Congress, not obstruction of justice under these circumstances. And nobody on the Democratic side was prepared to take the case that Mueller said that they had to make. Namely, was there or was there not obstruction of justice by the Trump people in this thing? And they rightly, in my judgment, decided they couldn't possibly get a conviction on that particular ground. So now what they're doing is they're arguing corruption of Congress, i.e. of the House, which is also really odd because their claims, I hope you agree with this, uh, that essentially the moment they ask for something, all claims of executive privilege by the by is A, a bit extreme, and B, uh, until you get a final court order on something of this particular nature, I can't conceive how it is that you can say that uh, given the constant and chronic battles between the president and the House over various kinds of privileges, that that rises to an impeachable offense. So I'm going to ask you, do you think the second count is one that you would pursue? I noticed you didn't mention it at all. Yeah, no, I, I don't think I would pursue it. I agree with you that I think that the, the House's sort of totally self-centered view of executive privilege, namely that there is no executive privilege, I think it's completely at odds with both our constitutional experience and also the best reading of the Constitution. Uh, the president's executive privilege, I think, is a corollary to his express constitutional powers in the same way that Congress's own oversight, is state, its own oversight power, is stated nowhere in the Constitution. Rather, yes. it's just an obvious corollary to, con to Congress's express constitutional powers. So the House's view of the executive privilege, I think, is totally wrong, just as Judge Jackson uh, on the district court in D.C., her view of executive privilege, uh, I think, is completely wrong. I don't think that a president asserting privilege should 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 be the, the subject of impeachment. Uh, of course, I don't. I will say I don't think that. I'll say I'm less impressed by the idea of saying we should all wait until this sorts itself out in court, because if anything, too many of these disputes between the president and Congress go to court, the courts really should not have such so much of a role in adjudicating these power plays between the Congress and the House, So, or sorry, the Congress and the president. And so the fact that there might be litigation, that this might be preempting litigation, that really doesn't bother me so much. I I'm, I'm, don't think that much about the litigation in general. You said, Richard, that the precursor to all of this was was the, what did you say, the Mueller report? I can't remember what, but yeah. I mean, that gets back to what I think the real precursor to all of this is. It was candidate Trump calling out to Russia in the 2016 election and saying, Russia, if you can get the servers or if you get the emails, please do. Um, that, I think, is, is the real context for all of this, that from the very beginning, President Trump, candidate Trump, really showed an eagerness to ask America's adversaries uh, to 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 intervene in American politics in an unprecedented way that set off a lot of red red alarms. I think the Horowitz report. I think the Horowitz the Horowitz report shows that uh, people in the Obama administration uh, overreacted or went too far in what they did. I think the Horowitz report did a good job of outlining a lot of that. But as we said throughout our debates over the Mueller report, I think that there was more than enough smoke surrounding the president's statements and early conduct to justify some sort of investigation, if only, as I said from the start, to clear up this cloud of, of, of this ethical cloud surrounding the administration. So I still think that the Mueller investigation was justified, and I think it played out very well. You and I just disagree on that. 
Well, though, let me just say I'm saying a slightly different point. Suppose you were right with respect to the investigation and it comes up blank as it did. And then whatever is you have this enormous Democratic outcry that Mueller has just not done it right. And you have these real charges with respect to obstruction. So they then what they do is they raise this thing and then they don't include it with respect to the impeachable offenses that they're willing to charge with. And so I'm not asking whether or not Mueller is a good or a bad guy. I thought the report was a bad idea, but that's neither here nor there. The question is, given the Democratic response to this report showing obvious bias against their self-appointed and self-anointed hero, uh, that seems to show more bias that's going to do it. And so it's going to undermine their credibility when they're going forward. And as far as Trump is scattershot stupidity, I mean, I regard, you know, you remember as early as I went back and reread it as late January, early February 2017, I asked the man to resign. Um, uh, with some tremendous report from all sides of the political spectrum. I would never dare ask it in this particular context, but I thought he behaved completely inappropriately with respect to all of this stuff. Um, but that's the whole point. He shoots off his mouth in so many stupid ways that he don't want to take any of it particularly seriously. The question is, what's the follow-up? And that's where, of course, everything came blank. And that's exactly what's happened with respect to the July telephone call. People are seeing a lot of stuff out of it, but they haven't added anything to it. So I think when this thing starts to go forward, um, uh, the Democrats are going to find themselves in real trouble. So here's a sort of an interesting question for you and for me. But since you know so much more about the insides of Washington, I'll ask it to you in reverse, <laughs> which, which who are they going to put on the prosecutorial team? Jerry Nadler, Adam Schiff? Yeah, I honestly have no idea. I have no well, idea other uh, than, uh, other uh, than uh, Schiff, other than uh, Schiff. Uh, they put him on. I think it's an unmitigated disaster. And if they don't put it on, it's an unmitigated disaster. If they put him on, everything that he's done, which is highly questionable, will now come to the fore in one way or another. So you're going to have a prosecutor who is essentially an interested party in virtually everything, which I think is a real mistake. You keep him off, and then what you've announced is you don't have any faith in your own particular case. So I think they have to put him on, uh, but I can't believe that he could carry it. So the real question is, do they have some real lawyers amongst their group that they could put on to supplement it? Because I think every time this guy goes on the air, he is going to be hammered. I mean, maybe you have a high view of him, but I think of him as one of the worst public representatives we've ever seen. Uh, You mentioned Nunes. I'm not going to defend him on everything, but there were two reports that came out uh, about what we thought was going to happen with the 2016 election. Nunes was right, and Schiff was wrong. No, no, no. no. Nunes was right about some things, but not about everything. Well, and and Schiff was wrong about everything. Yeah, Yeah, I'm not going to defend Schiff. Schiff is a total disaster, But but who comes out the better? Sure, he may have made his mistake here and there. Look, I think the really important thing to remember is when this Durham thing starts to come out, um, my guess is he's going to interview all of the sources from overseas that were not interviewed by uh, Horowitz, and he will have some information as to how this thing started, which will not be pretty. And so that is something. And since it's involving high-level Democratic officials, God knows whether or not there's going to be something about that which will relate back either to the president, Obama, Obama, or to Hillary Clinton. And all of this is sort of hanging over the back of it. And the moment you make shift your prosecutor, it just brings all this stuff to the fore. So I think that's actually a very difficult burden that Ms. Pelosi is going to have to face. She obviously can't do it. She's, I don't think, trained as a lawyer at all. I just don't know whom they're going to get. I'm not a inside person there. But the two obvious names are names that carry with them, I think you would agree, extensive liability. 
Yeah, I, th- I think they would probably be wise to rely primarily on uh, outside lawyers, whether it's the lawyer who led questioning in the House Intelligence Committee or um, – I'm trying to think now the member of the uh, Solicitor General's office who was detailed to Robert Mueller's investigation. Um, maybe they might do well to minimize their own personal role in the impeachment and bring on uh, some outside lawyers to 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 direct the questioning. All this will happen in, f- in front of the chief justice. I know we've gone long, but I want to talk just a moment about the chief justice. Sure. Uh, he'll be like his predecessor, Chief Justice Rehnquist. Chief Justice Roberts will be in the middle of all of this. What role do you expect him to play? Well, I mean, we've never had a trial of fact before. So one possible situation is that uh, he will take it upon himself as the one real independent judge to make rulings on such questions as admissibility, uh, cross-examination, and so forth. Uh, the reason I think that's likely to happen on these preliminary situations, I cannot believe that every time somebody wants to object to a question as being misleading or improper, uh, you're going to have to have a vote of 100 senators to decide whether or not you let the testimony in or out. These things have to be done very, very quickly. And I think so. The chief justice, I think, is in effect basically going to run the trial on all of the witness type issues. And then after that is admissibility, speaking too long and stuff of that. And then what you're going to have to do is to have a situation where each of the 100 senators are going to have to have at least some time that they could ask their particular question. They typically do it in you know sequence, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, and so forth. My view is I would rather them allow all the Democrats to get together and give it in one boast and all the Republicans to do it. I think that the style that was followed, for example, in the Senate when they uh, were doing this cross-examination of uh, Kavanaugh is a disastrous situation. Five for me, five for you, five for me. I'd rather it be two hours for one side and two hours for another side. I think the Chief Justice would probably have it within his power on a neutral basis to decide how they're going to take amongst themselves and allocate time. If one senator says, I don't want to ask any questions, but my buddy Hiram over here wants to ask them, he can do it for me. I think that would be allowed. So I think, in effect, now that this is actually going to be a trial trial with witnesses, evidentiary rulings, and so forth, uh, the chief justice will be a very busy man. And remember, he's not a trial lawyer. He's an appellate lawyer. Yeah, I, I, I think my, I have no idea, to be honest. I'm probably not doing our audience a service here. My own guess is, is somewhat the opposite, that that the uh, the rules eventually adopted by the Senate for the, process, the, the proceedings here, uh, whether they're adopted by a party line vote or otherwise, will pre-decide a number of the issues, leaving the Chief Justice much less discretion and much less of a role. I don't expect him to play much of a role. I don't know how much Mitch McConnell would trust Chief Justice Roberts to play a central role here. I think that ultimately, Chief, uh, I was going to say Chief Justice McConnell, uh, Senate Leader, uh, Majority Leader McConnell will remain in the driver's seat and not leave much of this to chance with the Chief Justice, which is probably the way it should be. I do think that to the extent that they're, the Chief Justice is making initial decisions on procedure, it will be the subject of a vote, um, which over and over again, which will be just majority control by Senate Republicans. I, I don't think the Chief Justice is going to play a, a very significant well, I, role. And I, but I just, I just want to say, I do think that you'll have partisans of both sides, but especially on the Democrats, we're already seeing some of it, I think, sort of trying to work the referee here, trying to demand even that, say, Chief Justice Roberts refused to seat McConnell and Graham in this trial at all because of of their perceived inability to live up to the oath that we started this discussion with. I think that's all just uh, ridiculous. 
ridiculous. And the chief justice will play even less of a role than his predecessor did in 1999. If he does that, there's World War III. Um, he'll be up for impeachment. But I think the, I would make the following distinction. I do believe that given this request of Schumer that uh, four witnesses be called, uh, that there will be behind-the-scenes negotiation between the two parties, as there are in other situations, to agree on a witness list and to agree on the question as to how much time they're going to have, uh, what sort of examination procedures. I think they can do that. But if, in fact, something goes off the rails in the middle of the trial and the agreement is now uh, stressed in any way, shape, or form, I do think it will fall to the Chief Justice to do this. And given that these characters are all intensely political, the fact that you can script this thing perfectly seems to me to be highly unlikely. And so I think he's going to force to be forced to take a somewhat larger role. It is known, I think, that he is certainly not a friend of Trump, and Trump is not a friend of his. Uh, I don't think that matters particularly much in this case. I think the Chief Justice will rise above all those petty concerns. Um, I I think he's a man of pretty stern character, actually, on these things. So I just don't see that being a problem. Uh, but I don't see how, in the nature of this particular case, once the proceedings get started, uh, that any pre-agreement can be self-enforced between the two parties. So I think it's going to be there. And I'm going to ask you another question, because I don't know what's going on here, and, but I, I don't think I'm alone. How long do you think this thing is going to take, A, between the time, well, three times? One of the Democrats is going to put the vote. I don't think they're going to put it today. Um, then after they put the boat, when, how long are the pre-negotiations going to go on? And then when they're over, how long is the trial going to go on? And will this thing end before March or April? So what do you think? Well, I think it'll end before March or April, but it might stretch longer than the Clinton one did. If if you're right that, that this is all a political blunder for Democrats and McConnell sees it that way, then he'll have every uh, interest in stretching this out a little bit to make the Democrats feel pain, especially when four Democratic senators, I guess it's still four Democratic senators, are running for president and will want to be in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, right? You got Klobuchar, Booker, Warren. Sanders. Sand, yeah, I mean, that's uh -huh. a fair chunk of the opposition. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting to note that none of them seem to show up when Republicans have a majority to get their guys confirmed. So Steve Menashe, I think, was confirmed 51-41. I could add up those particular numbers, and they equal 92, uh, which suggests that eight people were somewhere else at the time. And it would have been different if the top number had not been 51. And then I think people would have come back from the hustings. But in this particular the case, maybe I'm wrong, but can you possibly imagine any senator playing hooky uh, from an impeachment trial? I could see uh, one of the Senate, uh, the senators running for president, basically denouncing the Senate impeachment trial as a McConnell orchestrated sham, a kangaroo court, and saying, "I refuse to be part of this." I, I, I actually do think that one or more of the, the the presidential candidates will sort of campaign against McConnell's impeachment trial um, and just simply refuse to play along. But maybe I'm. Being too paranoid. I, I, I don't know, but let me put it this way: they pull out of it, then it's clear that there's going to be a, a, a verdict of non-commitment. But that and was that's, all. That, but that's. But precisely because that's the case, right? Well, there's, I mean, I think it is. Yes, I, I, I remember when I wrote my column, basically calling the impeachment charges ludicrous, something which you took strong exception to. Yep. Many of my learned colleagues came up to me and they said, you know, this is sufficiently serious that you can actually see 15 moderate Republicans peeling off and having a majority in the Senate uh, for conviction. Um, I don't see that as all true today. Maybe I'm misreading the situation, but I think the tides 
of war have not been kind to the Democrats. And so if they want to simply remove themselves from the proceedings, it will be treated as sour grapes. Uh, first they ask for it, then they refuse to participate in it. And unless they could give some really vivid illustrations as to why this thing is corrupt, I think that they are risking serious political stuff. And we know uh, nobody runs an error-free campaign uh, running for president. It's just impossible to do so. And the more the Democrats have to scramble, the more that Donald Trump can husband his resources, the more he can denounce this as being a fake proceeding and so forth, the more he can basically raise money off of this thing. The Democrats will come into the general election dispirited, disorganized, and demoralized. And I think it's going to increase the chances that Trump will win. Now, I suppose this will be our last podcast of the year, of the decade. Yes. Um, and I, I think it's safe to say that this year's episodes, there's been a lot more disagreement, uh, reasonable or otherwise, <laughs> than than ever before. I just want to say, Richard, uh, since it's that time of year, how much I thoroughly enjoy these conversations each time we do it. I'm so grateful uh, for, for the opportunity to do this with you. I'm grateful to you and grateful to our audience uh, for, for making this possible. So thanks, everybody. And thanks to you. Oh, uh, this has been a, a, a huge amount of fun. I hope it has been something of enlightenment. But I mean, you know, it is nice to have disagreements without yelling. So uh, <laughs> have a wonderful holiday. You too. We'll save the yelling for next year. And, no, we'll save uh, it for somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Richard. And thanks all of you for joining us for this latest episode of Reasonable Disagreements. We'll see you in the new year. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.